Welcome back. This is Matthew. I'm here with Jack. And today our guest is two-time world champion debater Bo So. Bo is a legend in the debating community. He represented Australia at the World Schools Debating Championship as a high schooler in 2013, where he and his teammates were crowned world champions. And again in 2016, debating for Harvard, Bo and his teammate Finelle won the World University Debating Championship in Thessaloniki. Bo is also the author of a profoundly insightful book that was an absolute joy to read. It's called Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. This is a particularly exciting episode for me because I competed in the same high school world championship as Bo did, but six to seven years later. And like many eager young debaters around the world, Bo was my very first debating role model. Jack is here with me as well today, and he himself was a highly accomplished speech kid in high school, so I know he's excited to get Bo's thoughts. In this episode, we talk about Bo's journey from childhood to two-time world champion debater, we talk about his lessons for how to approach arguments in the real world. We present some criticisms of debating and give Bo a chance to address them. And we talk about how he sees arguments in the realms of law and journalism. This is Ad Hoc. Thank you for listening. All right, well, Bo, thank you for joining us. We're excited to be speaking Thank you. you for having me on the HPR podcast. It's a thrill. Awesome. So I want to start where your book begins, um, the story of your move from South Korea to Australia when you were a young kid. Can you talk us through those difficult first few months in Australia and tell us what eventually led you to the debate room? Yeah, so I was eight when I moved from South Korea to Australia, um, which is a direct enough flight, but... Uh, quite indirect in other ways. I didn't speak English when I moved. And, you know, I had the tapes and the textbooks. So I had a few English phrases, but I found that in conversation, it's really quite different. And even of the different conversations, disagreements in particular, were very hard to adjust to. Right? Um, some of that is the something about disagreement that makes people imprecise in how they speak. It makes people passionate. It makes you feel more defensive. Um, and, and so whatever fluency I'd been able to achieve as a student, I wasn't able to conjure in my everyday life. And the other bit of context was that, you know, I was one of a handful of Asian kids, um, certainly the only one um, so uh, unpracticed, right, in, in the English language, in my school, in my neighborhood, and I felt my differences from my peers very acutely. Right? And for listeners who've had experiences like this, in those first few months, it becomes a kind of family project to assimilate, right, to get on, to integrate, and almost your success or failure as a migrant in those first few months is, can you pass through the day, uh, at least seeming like you somewhat belong? And I felt like the ways in which I was obviously different from my peers would frustrate that. And so I didn't want to draw attention to those differences. And so the combination of those two things made me want to be very agreeable. 
to smile and nod and, and keep my thoughts to myself. And I thought I had found in that a kind of posture in which I could live out the rest of my life. And what changed for me was a promise that my fifth grade teacher made me, which was that on the debate team, when one person speaks, no one else does. Right? And to someone who had been used to being spoken over and interrupted, who was unused to um, being heard in one's differences, not in one's similarities, um, that was a very tempting kind of promise. And so that's how I started debating. So interesting because I think many people have an image of debaters in their head as people who are already, you know, highly opinionated, <laughs> loud, some might say somewhat annoying people. I think at Harvard, you know, kind of similar to the way that people pejoratively refer to gov kids, kind of the yeah. same idea of a debate kid. <laughs> um, but, you know, while your story, I think, is, is pretty unique in the sense of the language barrier and the moving to Australia, it's not all that uncommon to hear of you know, kids who are relatively shy or wary of confrontation gravitating toward debate precisely for the reason that you said, because there's that magical promise in being able to speak and be listened to so um, intently for, you know, seven uninterrupted minutes. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about Gov kids. I mean, I knew, I thought it was IOP kids. <laughs> oh, that's one too. They can be one of the same. That was when I was in school. Um, and there's section kid, right? Sexy Which kid. I'm sure is a oh, cousin, sure. cousin of, maybe. Um, I mean, and to be clear, you know, those people have a place in debate too, of and course. they're drawn to debate. But, um, but I have found that some of the most committed members of the debate community, those who get a lot out of it, are the people for whom um, the idea of presenting yourself uh, in your fullness, in your disagreements, as well as your agreements with everybody else, the people who are uh, importantly, I think, used to listening as much as they are speaking, I have found that uh, those people find a kind of special relationship mm -hmm. with debate yeah. and, and maybe a different pathway through it as well. Was that the case for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I started out, I was not like a highly confrontational, highly argumentative person. Yeah. But also, like you, I started debating so young that in some way, I think, you know, there, there wasn't like an engagement with argument that really predated my experience in debate. So yeah. the two happened at once and um, debating conditioned, I think, the way I approached you know, daily disagreements. Yeah, well. and I think, I mean, I'm not a very uh, naturally confrontationally, co confrontational or even naturally very um, domineering kind of personality at all. So I don't know what it's like to be like that. But if you were like that, it's not clear to me that um, debates ethos of you got to work on this, you got to right. practice, like you got to time your speeches, you have to uh, give as much time to the other person as you do to yourself. You have to submit yourself to an adjudication. I'm not sure those things would come so naturally to you. So I do think there are features of the activity um, that that lend itself to other personalities. Yeah, there's definitely an aspect of the the govcator, the really political person stereotype that says that they want to always express their own opinion. But we know that part of the the beauty of debate. Or I came from a, a speech background in the U.S. Yeah. where I was also asked to to take positions that I didn't always agree with. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily accord because you're, you're forced to kind of think across both of those sides. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious, Bo, so 
as you kind of enter this world of competitive debate, you know, you come very far from that shy, kind of agreeable kid. And it seems like kind of as you go through the different stages, you develop this kind of unique, distinctive style of argumentation. Um, I think some would say it was pretty rhetorically ambitious, sometimes flashy, expansive. Um, you have speeches kind of that were recorded throughout your time in debate where you, you really paint with words, um, whether it's, it's quoting Virginia Woolf um, <laughs> when talking about special economic zones or defending undocumented immigrants as invisible c- citizens in society or even forcefully condemning private property uh, as a dictatorship of no alternatives. Uh, you certainly had a penchant for turn of phrase. Um, so where do you think that this kind of passionate, lyrical style of speaking came from? How did it develop? It's very kind of you to say that. And, um, and, and you know, in some ways I've come far from that kid, but in some ways I haven't, I still am that person, you know? And so that uh, sensitivity to what words can do to a person, um, the ways in which it can empower or disempower, the way in which it can create a, a room in which people feel comfortable raising their voice or not, um, those things still come from that uh, element of my personality. Um, and, you know, I was just at a, a reading yesterday where the author was saying when she was looking back on her diary it wasn't so much a formation of a person so much as just the repetition of themes and so I I don't know whether I've come very far I I know I can access a different kind of voice but that's a part of it and so in terms of the style that I developed I think you're right that there was a real sensitivity to language which came from the difficulty I had in acquiring it right I had to learn English one word at a time, it felt like. And I had to know this word was different from this word um, by looking it up in the dictionary. And so that was certainly a part of it. And I think another was, I think I never took the time that I was allotted, the attention that I was allotted for granted. And I felt that the way in which I do justice to that time to people who are taking um, minutes out of their day to listen to me is I can make them feel deserving of a certain kind of attention and the way in which I do that is by um, putting in as much work as I can to trying to express something that's clear and true and that uh, is alive with feeling. I want to pick up on what we started talking about and ask about a more long-term effect that debating might have had on you and your orientation toward politics and disagreements, how it shaped your political views. Um, I think there's something a bit paradoxical about debating in the sense that on the one hand, it requires you to speak with such confidence as though there's no doubt in your mind that we should pursue Marxist revolution or we should <laughs> you know, nationalize the pharmaceutical industry or whatever it might be. And, and I do think for some debaters, that kind of performative confidence sticks with them when they leave the debating room. They get this feeling of invincibility, almost in the way that they can out-argue anyone. 
But I think there's a, a sort of another category of debaters, and maybe there's some overlap here, but another category, which includes me, I think, who experience the activity as a more humbling experience um, because you go through the reps of, you know, first of all, seeing your arguments rebutted time and time again and learning that few, if any, of your arguments are infallible. And also just the activity in the way that it forces you to defend positions you don't necessarily support. I, I saw that as encouraging a sort of skepticism, a, a caution mm. in the views that I hold. So I'm curious in terms of the effect that it had on you, if, if you know, if you're to envision a spectrum of, you know, that feeling of invincibility that it might generate on the one hand versus an equally problematic, you know, debilitating, you know, hesitation or caution on the other hand, like where, where, where did debating leave you over time? That's such a thoughtful question. Um, you know, I think the first thing is when I was very young, it taught me I can have a voice on political issues, geopolitical issues, on something from taxation policy to how the IOC runs the Olympics, right? That was a, the big set of issues when I was growing up. And um, for me, that's a, a, a very important part of an education, uh, a civic education. And I know we're kind of living at a time where um, we don't want people to uh, assume lived experiences that are not their own or to speak out of place, right? And there's a room for that, um, and uh, p particularly in the public sphere. But when it comes to the privacy of a classroom in which people are trying to learn, I think the much bigger danger is we don't tell young people, these are your problems to think about. And so I was very appreciative that I lived in the northern suburbs of Sydney, 40 minutes away from Sydney, very green, leafy, quiet place. But we were talking about Tibet and we were talking about... Uh, uh, you know, economic sanctions. Yeah. And there's something completely ludicrous about that. <laughs> but that, that sense of there's a seat at the table for you, that actually seems actually closer to the truth, which is whether you're engaging in these conversations or not, we are making those decisions as citizens. Mm -hmm. So that was the first part. In terms of the, uh, you know, I, I, your description resonated with me a lot about... Um, the daily experience of failure, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of, of being able to talk about debate in lots of public forums and they introduce you as a, me as a world debate champion. But the truth of it is I lost almost every debate competition I ever attended, right? And it's not even close. And that's the case for the most successful debaters because in a tournament that has 500 teams with one winner, you're going to be on the losing end more often than not. And even within an individual round, um, you know, it's kind of like a, 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 a job interview or going on a date. Like you say some, you say some crazy things <laughs> or you just, yeah, familiar, or, yeah. you know, the, or the sentence syntactically doesn't make sense in the way in which you said it just because of the, because you're, you're a human being. And so I sometimes think the invincibility people try to project um, is compensating for what, Mm -hmm. What is truer, which is this puts you in touch with your infallibility. Yes. Um, uh, 
and you know and there's room for other kinds of education that we have to receive right from listening to other people and not always arguing about it um from just learning to listen to testimony for example that can humble you further but i do think within debate itself uh there are resources for the kind of humility that we want to engender um when people are talking about the most important issues that affect them sure yeah we want to talk about how to transfer that to the real world jack yeah to- I, and i have to say that the aspect of having a very short memory was always emphasized to me <laughs> and i was always very thankful that there were there are few rounds that i could be in where i was recorded so i have yes. to say it's a privilege to be able to watch past speeches you've given or other great speakers but i have to imagine sometimes it has to be looking back and fantasizing with that one sentence that didn't land exactly right. I mean, you can't you can't dwell on them, but if they're memorialized in eternity on the internet, you know, it's out there. For you have to sure. I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm in two minds about the whole recording thing because uh, on the one hand, it's a wonderful educational resource. I loved watching the people who did it at a high level and learning from them, but. Um, the great thing about debate was it felt like a kind of private space mm-hmm. and and that private space is diminishing in our time i think partly because people do have phones and they can record it but also because of the mindset people bring into a conversation which is um you know i think you can have face-to-face conversation and still be approaching it with the um ethic of twitter right, right. of like what's the hashtag here what's the one-liner that's going to take this person down is this person cancelled or not and so um for me the great value of those um early years in debating was that it it gave me a, a private space in which to make mistakes to try out ideas and to um and to deal with one another where we found each other yeah it definitely can be can be difficult to simply try on unconventional views in regular conversation. It's it's it really is a privilege to be able to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we we do want to ask about some of the the frameworks and kind of the heuristics for everyday disagreements and arguments that you suggest in your book. Um, one of them has kind of the the handy checklist of RISA R I S A right. Um, the idea that you know an argument has the highest likelihood of going well. If it can meet a few of these qualities, if it's real, important, specific, and then the two sides acknowledge that their goals for coming into it are both aligned. Um, and you talk about in the book that you deepen this as well after you try it out. And there are a couple conversations that you detail where Risa isn't enough by itself to guarantee success. So you add some other checks about, is the dispute necessary? Will it, will it progress the overall argument? Um, but oftentimes when we're, when we're talking to someone you know, throughout our day, it is difficult in the moment to stop, especially when we're stumbling headstrong into a debate and think about some of those steps. So I'm wondering how you approach it when you're talking to someone who you anticipate disagreeing with. Do you go through these checks in everyday conversation and how do you think that we can apply these? It's a good question. Um, I think the the first thing is it's not a binary right of perfect disagreement or not i think the work that these frameworks should help us do is approach it's a direction here's a better conversation here's a worse conversation and 
what I was trying to do is to kind of spell out some conditions that I think are an ideal to which we can kind of head towards. So the way in which I would think about it practically is two things. One is um, it's good to start every disagreement with some agreement about what it is that we're disagreeing about, um, how we're going to approach the disagreement. And that step of just getting permission from the other side, hey, I think we're disagreeing about this, or I think I think this, I think you think that. Is it okay if we disagree about this? That initial step um, does some of that work, right? Of just checking. So you're not talking past one another, you're not forcing something on um, the other person if they're not in the mood or if they feel a different way. And then um, the other framework that I came up with came from a problem in my own life, which is once you have these tools available to you, and once you feel like a pretty practiced debater, you think you can out-argue people. Right? <laughs> and this is uh, yeah. the point you were making earlier. And this was leading to all sorts of uh, personal strife <laughs> in my life. And so I had to say, uh, you know, I have to be judicious. And I have to be selective and I have to think when is the right time to agree and when is not the right time. And uh, when I thought about the ways in which my arguments went wrong, it often had to do with lacking one of these conditions that I thought were key. Is it a real disagreement or is it a, a misunderstanding? Right? Mm -hmm. Is it important enough to justify the disagreement? And one of the features that I saw in my own life is the disagreements that just blew out, up out of proportion was where it wasn't even that important. And the fact that the other person kept insisting on it or seeing something else in it uh, introduced all kinds of uh, feeling um, that made it go off the rails. Is it specific enough to be able to make progress or do you have to break down the conversation so you're, you're going to have multiple different ones? and what are the reasons why we're engaging in it and are we aligned in that? So that was the real important specific aligned. And I think, you know, when you do have the luxury of being able to think, um, to pause and just say, is this there? Especially when you and the other person have a shared vocabulary for talking about conversation, I think it can be useful. I think it's useful to be able to pause and say, uh, uh, are these conditions still there? Are we still having a productive one, a productive conversation? Um, but even being able to, on one hand, engage in the conversation, on the other, look at it from a kind of distance. I think all of those are useful um, practices to develop. Yeah. So it's not it's not quite as simple as saying let's let's agree to disagree. You know that phrase is kind of risen in, in recent years. I feel like often I'll be talking to people, and if I want to walk away from the argument or I feel like it's not going to go well, I'll say let's agree to disagree. But it's identifying why exactly we should yeah i mean that's yeah um agree to disagree is a cop-out right it's yeah a, yeah it's a sort of form of that agreeable crush yeah. in a way i mean i think the reason why um it does feel like a cop-out to me is uh because you haven't made any progress on understanding why it is that you can't make progress right and so how are you going to re-pick up the conversation if you don't know what went wrong the first time. And at least being able to say, you know, the reason why we didn't make progress was because we framed it the wrong way or we were uh, 
arguing in a way that wasn't conducive to hearing one another or some of these things that come with a more robust understanding of what disagreement is um uh i think that that might lead to better discussions in the future so maybe it's not dispensing with let's agree to disagree but saying uh let's agree to disagree because mm-hmm. diagnosis of what went wrong and that way that's just one additional step but that way you have some idea of what you do the, the next time want to proceed um if you don't have any follow-up to that jack to some um potential criticisms of debate yeah and see how you respond okay <laughs> so you know you're you're two-time world champion debater you've written a book you probably believe in the value of this activity i do, I, I do too quite okay. deeply um but in the spirit of debating i want to present some counter arguments and right. see how you see what you have to yeah, say about wonderful. them so and we chatted about this a couple weeks ago yeah one of the more forceful critiques that i've read of debate was presented by the Irish novelist Sally Rooney. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's been a while since I read, read that critique. I'm not sure if you've read it recently. Um, but when I first read her essay, I developed some misgivings about debate. She, and she was, uh, it's worth noting, before her success as a novelist was a European champion as a debater. Um, so I developed some misgivings, then I read your book, and then I started to change my mind again in the opposite direction. Um, but here's my summary of her long sort of multifaceted criticism. I think the idea is that debating, which you concede in your, in your book, but you view it as a strength of debate, involves a sort of dangerous detachment of one's identity from one's argument. It requires you to opine often very passionately on issues you might not really care about, um, issues in which you have no personal experience. Um, and crucially, it requires you to do all of that in the aim of winning a contest rather than you know, aiming for the truth. It's a sort of superficial gamification of highly consequential real-world issues. And Rooney went as far as to say that that made her find the activity depressing and vaguely immoral, mm. which is no small accusation. Mm. Um, what, do you, what do you say to that? Um, you know, you don't want to be on, the, on, on an opposing side against <laughs> Sally Rooney, if only because she can outright you. Um, so the article was in the Dublin Review. Yes. Um, it's a wonderful piece of writing worth reading in full. And the truth is, I agreed with a lot of it, you know. Um, I agreed with it as one piece of a bigger picture. But that piece felt very truthful to me, mm-hmm. which was there were times when um, debating felt depressing or repetitive or um, immoral is the other word you use but it felt like the opposite of that to me at other times too and so for me the attraction to this activity is it felt so intensely human in that way there are lots of frameworks for disagreeing well where you can read it and say who can disagree with this right like this is of course (laughs) of course we should listen and of course we should do all of these things But what I love about debate is it is about the funkier stuff of uh, how we use words and how we manipulate our bodies and speech and uh, timing does have an almost physical effect on how people respond. And so that uh, uh, those elements that can go 
towards the light can contain shades of darkness. Um, that was for me a kind of an attraction um, and certainly made it a worthier subject in my view to investigate and to write about. In terms of the specific um, claims and, and come back if I, if I haven't responded to all of them, but the, the point about um, identity does give me some pause um, and the separation of identity from position does give me some pause, especially because you know, I'm now at the law school, I was in journalism before. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things and a lot of clever people saying a lot of clever things. And really, whether it is journalism or the law, all of these industries, the aspiration is to arrive at some kind of a truth. And more often than not, that's going to be grounded in experience. Right? It's going to be grounded in something other than just the most clever kind of extrapolations. Um, and so I do worry about that. And I think the response I have on it is that debate should be one tool among many that we have for arriving at the truth. Because right. identity, and uh, which itself is kind of politically constructed, right? It is not a neutral um, entity. Skewing so close to what you have been like in the past skewing so close to what you have seen, skewing so close to what others of your group believe or have experienced as a community, that too can be a straitjacket. It need not be. It can be an access to truth, but it can be a barrier too, where it becomes the only way in which we think about the world. And so for me, it was very important that uh, for just two hours, which is how long it takes um, for a longer prep and a debate round, that you set aside all of that. Mm -hmm. right? That you got a relief from all of that. And for those two hours, you argued sometimes against what you believed, that you argued without regard for what your normative priors were. And I think that was additive. Yeah. Right? And so for me, that I think is the better question. Is this gonna be additive to our conversations, to our decision-making, to our attempts to find the truth? Um, not, is it gonna be the only way in which we try to do that? Right. Um, so uh, th that's how I would start to think about that. I agree, and I think you know, you're, you're mentioning the fact that a debate lasts two hours, roughly, reminded me of this, this point in your book, and I kind of shared this attitude when I stopped debating for a little bit, maybe had a bit of a, like, a weird chip on my shoulder about it for a short period of time, I thought, oh, you know, who can make a good argument in seven minutes, right? But then you start to realize, like, where other than debate are you actually focused on developing an argument in more than seven minutes and have people actually listen to you? Quite rarely, I think. Yeah. And so that's, you know... A, a hidden virtue of debate that's often, I think, not spoken about. Yeah, and what a, what a credit to the activity that all, all these people go out of it feeling ambivalent <laughs> um, and and that they develop the resources to be ambivalent often from the activity right. itself. And, uh, and, um, and, you know, some part of it is, uh, at least when I went through it, and I'm not saying this is the case for anybody else, but when I went through it, uh, it's not a, a pattern unfamiliar in one's 20s to like question what you've done before and strike out in a sure. different path and say, you know, this was all broken and 
<laughs> and and uh, at, that's how it felt a little bit to me. Mm-hmm. But now uh, I have a, a fuller appreciation um, for the activity than I think I did, even when I was a fanatic for it. Um, Amazing. I have noticed that about debating. You know, I don't think football fans are so ambivalent about football <laughs> right but like it's interesting debaters are like we're very uh we're very concerned <laughs> well, it depends on the type of football you're asking about i think i think a lot of american football fans right? would tell you they're a lot of ambivalence fair enough yeah fair enough fair enough i'm just there for the pigs in the blanket <laughs> well what about what about the idea that debating forces you to see the world in binaries so there's, there's a proposition there's an opposition in most forms of debate at least the ones that that you and i did where, where's the room for compromise, for negotiation there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and uh, I don't have a full answer for you, but I'll give you a couple of directions. So one is, I think some questions lend themselves better to a, a, a topic that creates two hmm. opposing sides than others, right? So if you have a multi-party negotiation, um, you can try to slice up the dispute through a series of uh, A, B, A, B kind of disagreements. But I think those that will be more appropriate under certain circumstances than others, right? right. Um, and it's not a wholly unfamiliar problem because um, when you think about legislation, right, and the way in which it's debated, there's ostensibly a party saying, yes, pass it. Another party saying, no, don't pass it. But there's a difference between a kind of an omnibus spending bill that has lots of different components versus a a simpler single policy on which there can be other sides. So um, uh, I I think the the subject matter of the dispute matters to that. Um, And then I think the other way in which within debate we resist some of that binary thinking is... um, within the round itself, you're often going to find that on some issues, you run out of arguments. The other side has the better argument on that point. It need not change your position, but you know on, on there's a real weakness that you've identified in your position. And already we're starting to get out of the binary thinking because we know, on at least on this axis, our position is the weaker one. I need to fix it. I need to supplement it through some other solution or something like that. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is once the debate has ended, that huge profusion of information, of understanding of how arguments relate to one another, uh, that can set up the conditions for a richer conversation Yes. that goes beyond the binary. That says, okay, so you said A, I said B, maybe the answer is C. And that helps us get at both of our concerns. So uh, I think it can be additive rather than subtractive. Um, But that too, again, uh, involves emphasizing debate not being the only tool of disagreement we need. Yeah. And I I think some of the most fruitful conversations I've had directly on your point about debate being additive followed a debate round. Yeah, exactly. I I read um, Team Canada this year made it pretty far. They lost in the final of the World Schools Championship. But um, I remember hearing about, you know, the conversation that they had on the bus ride home from the World Schools final and how 
you know, they thought of all kinds of new angles on the topic. And it's like the debate, the discussion doesn't end, you know, at minute 60 or whenever the round is over. So I think it's important to remember that whatever, whatever appearance of a binary or whatever appearance of, I think in Sally Rooney's mind, you know, like the meaninglessness of the activity of just taking a position you don't necessarily agree with, that doesn't need to extend beyond the debate room, right? That, that has its function in allowing you to play with ideas, to experiment, to detach your identity from argument in a way that can be, in a way that can be productive, but then to um, reinsert your identity later on. Yeah, and, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the way in which we've been speaking about debate, it's almost like um, you get all the all your ducks in a row and debate is the ultimate discuss, ultimate uh, expression of disagreement. That's one way of viewing it. But it can actually be the opposite where um, debate, because it's this low stakes kind of game, as you said, um, that helps us overcome some of the shyness that we have in confronting our differences head on and even just expressing for a long period of time what we believe. Yeah. And how often have we been in meetings or dining room conversations or, um, uh, or social gatherings where someone is kind of expressing their opposition but not actually giving any reasons, right? <laughs> They're just kind of saying, mm, I don't really believe that. It may be that debate can sometimes be the first piece yeah. just to get it all out. And then the uh, real discussion or higher forms of discussion can follow. Yeah, I do, I do want to mount one more yeah, defensive Rooney's yeah. critique. And I think this, the format of speech that I did had some similarity to this gamification of yeah. highly consequential real-world issues. Um, specifically, it makes me think about, you mentioned, you talked about Tibet. There were many conflict zones around the world that I'm sure you were asked to opine on. Similarly, I was often asked to grab people's attention, grab an audience's attention, essentially by presenting them with someone's individual story. We would talk about pathos. Mm. It was one of the most important persuasive elements. Um, and the first part of a speech that I would give was called an attention-grabbing device. Mm -hmm. So there were countless times where when researching a speech about a war or a humanitarian disaster, I would use someone's story as an atten as a AGD at the beginning of the speech. The sadder, the better, essentially. Wow. And I think there's one way of looking at talking about conflict zones, humanitarian issues, and, and things that deserve attention as giving voice to these people's stories. Yeah. There's another way of looking at it as exploiting their stories. Yes. And I think we've talked about throughout this conversation how words are powerful not only if they'll be heard by people in other countries but even the people that you're speaking to and i think we should we should give care to that i'm wondering what you think about the way to express a story like that to make it not exploitative even when you're you're in a topic where you're necessarily shining a light on more somber issues thank you for sharing that and um it's a hard and important question um, I'll say, first of all, why I think it's worth trying to find an answer to that question, right? As opposed to giving up on an activity that would encourage something like that. The reason why I think it's worth trying is um, though exploitation, substitution of others' lived experiences, though those things can be vices and normative um, missteps, if not something worse than that, so can apathy, right? And uh, disregard. And uh, 
this is the same question that you have to answer as a journalist. Like, how do you tell a story to audiences that are not captive in a way that's going to make them pay attention? Like, attention itself has a a, a normative import, right? And and it and trying to achieve it and get it can land you in hot water in the way in which you've described. But I think it's a, a worthy project too, right? So then uh, how do you try and do it um, better? I think the main is uh, to approach it with a sense of humility, right? And um, to show you're working out to the audience of where it is that you're coming from. What is the factual basis of what you're saying, for example? Why is it that you're drawing the extrapolations that you're drawing? And um, luckily, I don't think that's so uh, opposed to the goal of persuading the audience either. Right? The more, you know, there is something very unseemly about the most sophomoric expressions of the attention grabbing device as you've suggested there's something morally unseemly about that but there's something unpersuasive about that too right and i think that uh speaks to the fact that people have um deep-seated intuitions that we want to be as respectful to the voices of people who are really going through this experience who know the most about it we want to know that someone who's reporting on that second hand is being faithful to the facts on the ground they're explaining how it is they're reaching the conclusion so it's not just fluff that that's disconnected with the reality um and uh so i see that as 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 not only good moral practice but good persuasive practice as well yeah so we've We've critiqued debate a lot. But I, I think that you oh, saved it. Good. Yeah, I, th- I think you've mounted a pretty vigorous oh, no defense. Um, <laughs> now to uh, attack your future career. Of okay, law go. And, and potentially journalism. Why um, did I agree to this again? <laughs> <laughs> you knew for, former debaters yeah. were going to lead to this. Um, but you're going to graduate law school soon. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that the, the world that you're graduating into has been technologically changed in the past three years, um, significantly, maybe most significantly by the rise of artificial intelligence, at least in the, the public dialogue. Um, you, when you were writing your book, you know, as and you were working as a journalist, you had a chance to see what seemed like a, a pretty significant leap in potentially robotic skill in debating when you saw a, a seasoned debater that you knew debate a IBM creation that was meant to represent kind of the, the rise of a robotic debate, perhaps. Um, now we have the rise of ChatGPT and large language models. And one of the things that you noted from that debate was that IBM's tool was extremely fast at finding sources, citing statistics. It had, you know, basically the entire internet at its disposal. And that's very similar in some ways to how people are currently engaging with tools like ChatGPT as a way to mine the vast world of information to strengthen their arguments. Do you worry that there's any risk, though, that as people become more reliant on these tools and in different types of argument, whether it be a lawyer writing a brief or me writing my social studies essay, that we're going to forget about some of the persuasive tools, both written and expressive, 
that are sometimes just as important as having solid evidence. I do worry about that. Um, and, you know, that, that IBM debate was an interesting um, moment. It feels a little dated now, actually, because the, I think the technology has come a long way and AI doesn't feel like a novelty item anymore in the way in which it did when I was reporting on that. Um, and, you know, the thing that I noticed in that debate um, was it felt like the machine was playing a different game than what the human was playing, right? The machine thought, in a kind of a touching way, more evidence, uh, more studies, more citations is what's going to carry the day. And the human being recognized it's about connecting to people's real concerns, Right? almost like a form of listening to um, what it is they're likely to be most responsive to, more attention to the pathos, the emotion, the speech, all of that. Um, and for that reason, they were able to get out ahead, I think, of the machine, and, um, and in my view, quite clearly so at the time. I think there is great wisdom in how people approach disagreement. Right. Uh, there's lots of faults, but people are uh, very good critics, I think, when, when ideas are presented to them. They can't always articulate why, but they know when something's not quite getting them. It's not quite persuading them. Kind of like I was saying before, I do think people are sensitive to when someone is misappropriating someone's experiences. They kind of feel that. And whatever that wisdom is, um, I think it is under real threat at this moment. Um, in part because the technologies that we create recreate us. And so spending lots of time on social media that um, socializes us to think about disagreements as taking some forms rather than others, it looking like a series of text blocks responding to each other as opposed to something more organic and human, that does have the capacity to override and change some of those more native and human responses that we have to, um, to disagreements. So, um, you know, there's a lot to, to say on the subject and I, and I don't, uh, and I'm no expert on it, right? I, I, I'm, I'm just struggling to catch up, but, uh, but I tend to think that, um, being attentive to the ways in which our technology changes us, taking account and giving voice to all of what we as a civilization have already learned about how we should talk to one another, the tools that we have for agreeing, for disagreeing and agreeing better with one another. Um, I think that can be an important moat that we develop um, and an important tool that we have for setting boundaries for what we want the technology to do or to not do. Yeah, so I guess we probably shouldn't use ChatGBT as practice when we're <laughs> on our debate skills. Just one, one question about the legal profession then. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of common if you, you meet a young person who's very good at arguing, a parent or an adult might tell them you should be a lawyer. There's you know an easy stereotype to fall into that lawyers are naturally argumentative and to some extent maybe warranted. You know They're often paid to make good arguments. 
but we see many ways in which becoming really good at arguing, almost in a way like you describe in your book, young debaters are trained to find arguments that are good for anything. Becoming really good at arguing as a lawyer can sometimes lead a lawyer to argue for things that people find morally dubious. Um, at the same time, there are many types of lawyers. For example, I, I worked in a public defender's office over the summer where necessarily you need to embrace an argument because we feel that arguments should be made on behalf of people that need defense. So I'm wondering, as a training lawyer, how do you think about the legal profession's relationships with good faith arguments? So I, I have to um, just admit that I'm, I'm coming at it a few years in front of you, right? So I'm in my last year of law school. Um, I haven't practiced. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm giving you secondhand information from what I've gleaned, what my legal education has been like. One thought that comes to mind is um, being an advocate is one thing. Right? So you're assigned to argue for this client or that client. You're on this side of the issue. You're on that side of an issue. Um, but there are other roles that lawyers have to play, whether it be judges, right? whether it be you know, some of the great heroes of mine in the law, like Albie Sachs, um, who's a South African constitutional lawyer, who was called on to write the constitution of his country, for example, laying out a framework for what the future of a country trying to overcome a history of racial segregation and oppression looks like. Um, there are times when lawyers are called not just to argue for a position, but to arrive at the right one, to take a stance, to argue for it, um, requiring all of those lawyerly qualities of not only intellect, but prudence, of foresight, of... Uh, inclusiveness in terms of who you consult and, and uh, a, sen an, a, a sense and an instinct for the times in which you're operating. Um, those are qualities that I really admire um, and that, that I hope to develop and that I think sometimes the just the purely adversarial nature of the law that you've identified um, that it may not do enough to prepare you for. And I think one, one thing a lot of those uh, luminaries say is, you know, they have to draw on more than the law to be able to do the work that they do, whether it's literature, understanding humanity, whether it's the relationships that they have, whether it's community engagement. Um, so I think that's kind of one, one part of it. Um, and I think the second thing is, you know, uh, I think lawyers are very um, thoughtful and they've had a long time to be thoughtful about the uh, limits and uses of the adversarial practice. Um, and I am, on the whole, um, sympathetic, as you can tell from the debate background, that for a period of time, that kind of really rigorous, sharp argument can be additive to some process. Um, but that's not to say we, we shouldn't look at other modes of engaging with one another, whether that be restorative justice, whether it be other ways of facing. And, you know, I feel it as a student now. We had mock arguments the other day. And, um, and you know, you're just kind of getting into the spirit of that, that 
contest back on the back on the debate floor. Yeah, a little bit ways. because you know when you're a student, you don't uh, argue that much. It's you're just kind of learning the law, mm-hmm. and um, and and so I had one of these exercises, and I ended up saying something. Uh, not quite cruel, but not very nice and completely <laughs> unnecessary. And I apologized to my uh, my classmate after saying that. I just said, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know. You know, it just it just kind of came out of me. And she said, you know, I actually appreciate it because it helped cement a particular lesson in my mind. And I did come away from it thinking, oh, this profession can be quite harsh, because you know, I had I had been led to say something that. I wouldn't excuse myself saying in a regular context. And she felt she had gotten something out of it. And so, uh, you know, I'm in all kinds of different minds about that. And um, I'll keep you posted on how my thinking evolves. It's an iterative process either way. Yeah. Very insightful answer. Um, But this has been a wonderful discussion. I just want to close off with a request for advice to two different audiences. Okay. One is I expect quite a few young debaters will be listening to this podcast. I'll certainly send it around to some Canadian youth. Um, I'll leave this open-ended. What advice do you have to young debaters to get as much value out of the activity as they can? Yeah. Um, There's a lot of paying your dues in debating, right? There's a lot of uh, learning the basic skills. And um, just because of the way we're wired, I think we're most likely going to spend some period of our careers mimicking the examples of people who have come before us. And I certainly went through that. But there comes a time when you have to strike out on your own, where you have to synthesize all that you've learned and try and speak in your own tone of voice. And um, I would encourage people to take that step sooner rather than later, that their success in debating um, won't be on another person's terms. Yeah. Great advice. And I definitely fell victim to that myself listening yeah, to it. So I don't think you're a victim for that. You know? <laughs> YouTube yeah. is, is very easy to find many <laughs> examples to follow. Um, last question then. Yeah. It was just Thanksgiving. It's yes. soon going to be Christmas. This time of year, a lot of people are thinking about how to approach some of the most difficult arguments they encounter, yes. which is arguments with the people we love. Yes. Sometimes these disagreements are profound. You know, there's no shying away from them. Sometimes they're, as you said earlier, more trivial ones that then spiral into conflict and misunderstanding. What advice would you give for navigating these fraught disagreements that, you know, quite frankly, are for many of us, probably the most important or at least the most meaningful ones that we'll encounter. Yeah, um, and I had gotten this question a lot um, in the lead up to Thanksgiving. Okay, right? so we're a little late. And, so we're no, no, but, but no, you're actually yeah. very early for Christmas, right? And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so I was actually, at, at the Thanksgiving things I attended, I was sort of on the, on the lookout or whether something like this was going to happen. But I think the turkey made everyone very sleepy. (laughs) I had a very uh, kind of sleepy Thanksgiving instead. Um, You know, I agree with the challenge that you've identified, which is it's it's hardest when it's the people you love. Because that uh, RISA checklist that I framed earlier, is it real, important, specific, aligned? 
it, it kind of goes out the window a little bit when it's the people that you love, you know. Everything does feel real in some ways. It does feel important in some ways. How can you be specific when you're living the course of your life together? Um, so I think it's a, you know, those disagreements tend to go get out of hand because people are least disciplined, I think, and least cautious and least thoughtful. So just being aware of that tendency is one thing that helps. Another one that um, uh, I found useful in these settings is to really try and put yourselves in the shoes of the other person. Mm -hmm. And debate has some tools by which you do that, right? So you really try and write down what the best argument for their side is, or you critique your own arguments from the eyes of someone who fervently disagrees. And... That can be difficult to do in the moment, um, but uh, even a brief period of putting pause on the discussion, just saying, these are our positions, let's think about it a little bit more and let's re-engage, um, those things can be very useful. So um, I would just say approaching things more deliberately than you would even with a stranger and then taking the time to think about um, the possibility that you might be wrong, that that can be helpful as well. I think that's great advice. Well, Bo, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was a wonderful discussion. It was a lot of fun. It and felt like I was parrying the whole time. <laughs> thank you for sustaining our arguments. We're, we're excited to see where your journey with arguing and writing and whatever it is takes you next. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. Well, this was ad hoc. Thank you for listening. See you next time.